Hi, my name is Reverend Lauren Gerlach. I'm so glad to be with you for the Nicene Creed series. We've been talking about the logistics of the creeds, if you will. The who, what, when, where. We've covered that with the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed, the baptismal questions that those were born out of, and answers to. But remember that, that's really the basic foundation of what I hope we all learn from this is that creeds really come from questions. They come from unanswered questions or debated questions or essential questions that people want answered of the Christian faith, of who our God is. The other part that's important for this is that they wrote it in a spirit of defending and preserving. It's kind of weird to think about that in 2022. I don't know that every time I've walked into church my whole life, I've thought about defending and preserving the Christian faith like it was going anywhere. But then when I start to think about it and I start to look around and I see the world in day to day and I read the stories of the early church fathers and I read the stories of how the church has grown in 2000 years and I go to the Holy Land and I look around in Israel, yeah, our faith does need defending and preserving. But what does that even look like? My question for you today is that how are we praying the creeds together? How are we praying the creeds? Is our credo, that means I believe, is our credo the same as the credo that was written? Are we living out the story that they have written? There's a really beautiful part in which it says that um, a part of history in an antiquity text from a Catholic priest that says the creeds are the seal of our souls and that they really bind up everything that we really deep down want and that we crave and we desire because we desire God. Whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, God has made us with this yearning and this love and this desire for God's truth. And so that's my question for you today as we go forward from this place and continue to learn more about the creeds is, are we praying them in a way that the original authors have prayed them, have written them, cared about them and gave everything they had to them so that we can know God better, we can serve God better, and we can love God better. I think it's really interesting to think about creeds being the seal of our heart, something that actually does more than just the words that we say, but actually affects our hearts. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The pairing of that with the Nicene Creed today is there is one phrase that is truly uh, powerful when you think about the room in which uh, the Nicene Creeds were approved, and it is this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. One Lord. I, I want to focus on that for a minute because we are Americans, uh, mostly here, I would imagine, or all Americans, and we overthrew lords and kings and all the rest of that a couple centuries ago. Uh, they did a very good job of overthrowing that process. I mean, really, we don't have an access to understanding truly how a lord and a king would have worked 2,000 years ago. I mean, do you know that George Washington, they were debating what he would be called when he became president, and your majesty was on the list of options? Like, it'd be really weird to do that to any president now. What we end up doing is we just say, Mr. President, or Mrs. one day soon. But here we have the kind of title and the framework here is to minimize the majesty and power and authority of our leaders. Our respect for our elected leaders is nowhere near what it would have been 2,000 years ago when the Nicene Creed was 
finalized because who was in the room but Emperor Constantine himself. I just want to focus on this for a minute. In 325 AD, you have Emperor Constantine, who was the emperor who gathered the Nicene Creed together and uh, the, the leaders together. And here they are declaring that there is a Lord that is not you. Right? I mean, you've got a room. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. Constantine is sitting on the throne of Rome. This is pre-fall, right? So this is like Rome actually close to the height of its power. And you have Constantine sitting on a throne where he is the heir of Augustus Caesar. He is the, on the heir of Julius Caesar. These who actually claimed that they actually were so close to God, they were God themselves. And here you say in front of his ancestor, we have one Lord and it ain't you. That's a really powerful framing. Because for most of human history, we have had people where you would imagine that they have authority. They have power. They are the ones who actually, if you were to look at any objective sense, they have the choice of whether you're going to live or die. What your options are on this earth it would be determined by a king or a lord. And the Christian claim is that there's actually a king of kings or a lord of lords above you, and you're not the final say on such things. I love that framing of the Nicene Creed because it gives us a perspective to ask, what is our role in following Jesus? This last fall, we had a, a podcast that, we, that we're doing called Leading People, where uh, Julie Chisholm and I interview leaders, Christian leaders, to talk about how to be Christians of influence, not just kind of centers of influence in the corporate world. And I interviewed a guy who was a former NFL head coach. We had him here, and he made fun of me on the, from the pulpit. Uh, his name was Les Steckel, a former NFL coach, and then uh, he led Fellowship of Christian Athletes. His podcast, he talks about how the primary shift that needs to happen in people's life is to claim him as not just Savior, but Lord. It's a huge distinction between those, which I'd never quite framed out. That when you claim that Jesus is your savior, you claim that you need help. Help, Lord, save us. We are broken and in need of salvation, right? There's this piece where all of us are broken, and frankly, whether or not we admit it right at this moment, there will come some moment where we recognize our need for salvation and the limits of what we can do. But he said there's a shift. When you move from just asking Jesus to save you to asking Jesus to actually drive your life, for Jesus to be the one to actually shape who you are and what you want in this world. And I think it comes with, it requires a very humble assessment of what you can do in your life, of what you can actually control. When you think about lords and kings, and you even think about our own lives, mostly what I keep thinking about is how little control I really have. I mean, I have a wife, two kids, 6,000-ish congregation members. That when you start to realize that we are all filled with our own hearts and our own dreams and our own pathways, we each get to control really only one thing, which is 
who are we going to listen to? I actually think when you think about the, the, the framing of Lord or King, the best question for us to be asking that's the equivalent of that in this world is whose opinions do you care about? In the end, whose opinions are driving your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? When you're driving to work, is it your boss, shareholders, friends, coworkers, spouse, children, pastor, coworker, whatever it is? What's driving your heart? Who are you trying to please? I've had a huge transition in my life on that piece, mostly because I have come to a, I think, much more uh, honest assessment of how little control I actually have over anybody else. It actually uh, came with a change in uh, a theme verse for my life. I don't know if you guys have this, but when I was 13 on, there was one theme verse that really changed my, that really drove my life of where I imagine myself in scripture and I imagine myself in this moment. Uh, I will admit I'm opening up myself to you because this is looking back hilarious that 13 year old Arthur had this as his theme verse because it comes from the end of the book of Joshua. So in the book of Joshua, uh, Moses led them to the promised land, but he couldn't go in it. And the entire book of Joshua is about the conquest of Israel. We're finally at the end of the book of Joshua. They have everything that they had ever wanted right in front of them. And the leader, the Lord, the, you know, he wasn't king because they didn't have kings then, but the Lord, the ruler of Israel, Joshua, stands up and gives a massively impassioned speech. Now you understand why 13-year-old Arthur thought this was what he was called to do. But what's funny is that like, this speech is like Lord of the Rings, gladiator, Braveheart style speech, right? This is a, your foes are in front of you, what are you going to do kind of speech. And in fact, that's the whole principle. It goes like this where he stands up and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. I mean, you can just get chills. You can imagine Taylor writing a score to encompass it, right? To bring everyone around you, to have everyone say, yes, we will choose this day. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of the Amorites or the gods beyond the rivers, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And I always loved that bit. And I loved giving speeches and doing that, even in middle school and high school. Like, that was what I was called to do, and I imagined myself with it until one day I realized they didn't listen to Joshua. <laughs> like, the big, grand, bravehearty, gladiator, Lord of the Rings-ish speech didn't work. The Israelites fell. They did exactly the opposite of what Joshua had wanted, and... I had been through a divorce, I'd been through my own failures, I'd searched for a wife for a couple years and finally found Becky and I realized I had no control over any of that process whatsoever. And you come to a more honest assessment of your humanity. And a few years ago, my, Becky and I were driving to do a personal family retreat where uh, we would talk about our family core values and who we wish to be. And I told her that that my theme verse that I'd had since I was 13 no longer worked for me. And I explained why, and she said, can I submit a new theme verse for you? And my wife, who's smarter than I am on this, she is far more attuned uh, to the subtle nuances of the spirit. And she says, have you paid attention to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to to Nebuchadnezzar. 
And I said, no. And I'm about to read it for you here. And what we're gonna do is read three stories in scripture where people find themselves face to face with a king, with an emperor, with a Lord, with one who has authority. And I want you to pay attention to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar. So to give context, this is the exile in Babylon, 600 years before Christ. They are slaves in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar has erected this massive statue. And every time someone is supposed to play music, they are supposed to kneel and bow to this statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which is in violation of everything Jews and Christians believe. And so he calls them together to ask for an accounting of why they refuse to worship him. And this is the passage in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. The strongest position is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at an emperor and saying, I don't have any need to give you a response. You aren't my audience. You are not the person I'm trying to please in this world. There is power when the world cannot control you. Now, if you were to imagine any setup in, the, in human history where you would have a neutral observer show up and see them, you would sit there and say, well, Nebuchadnezzar has power and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have not. Except the greatest power in the world is giving your heart to one Lord, which means that whatever happens to you in this life, they can't touch it. It's a different power which allows you and I to pray and say, okay, God, can you remove from me the opinions of other people? So while I'm very glad for the tea party of 300 years ago and very glad for the Declaration of Independence and the revolutionary forefathers who freed America, the reality is we are all still bound in one way or another, aren't we? To the opinions of friends, social media, bosses, coworkers, spouses, kids, one another. When in the end, the only audience that actually matters is Jesus. The only audience that in the end actually matters, the only opinion, the only perspective that in the end is eternal is the one of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It gives people power to recognize that whatever happens in this world, it's not unimportant but it melts in light of allegiance to the one who is above even the kings and the lords of this world, even our bosses and our friends. It gives power, say, for Paul when he's arrested and he goes in front of King Agrippa. This is the story in Acts 26. But Paul said, I am not mad. They accused him of being mad, but whatever. Most noble Festus. 
But I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. Here you have Paul in front of a king and Paul's in chains and the other guy's not. Who would you choose to be? You're taken back 2,000 years to the entrance room of, or to the throne room of Agrippa. Who would you choose to be? The king? or the one in chains, but he's found freedom in Christ. Who would you rather be? I mean, can you imagine the arrogance of Paul to stand there in chains and go, I think you ought to be like me? Now, maybe you can get these chains off me, hint, hint. But Paul is not terrified in this moment of what is going to be done to him. He is clearly naming that the Lord in front of him, like the bishops in 325 in front of Constantine, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looked at this king and looked at him and said, you actually have no authority. You can kill my body, you can do whatever you wish to me, but my soul belongs to somebody else. It's what allows our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to do the same thing. When he came face to face, with a representative of Rome, John 18. And then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you about this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests of you delivered you to me, what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. A few notes that I like about this passage, one of which is Pontius Pilate feels very postmodern. What is truth, he asks in the question. Right? There are a lot of times where people think that they're really brilliant and that they've conceived of a new and novel concept when Pilate actually mentioned it 2,000 years before. And the answer to actually the question of what is truth was answered last week or the week before. I don't know, the weeks have kind of run, to get, run together. When you look at Jesus' namings of who he is, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can imagine Jesus sitting there after Pontius Pilate walks out and he goes, well, actually, I'm the truth, actually. I'm, I am. What is truth, Pilate asks? And the answer is that in the end, Jesus' kingdom is the only one that will actually be powerful. So you ask the question, what is truth? 
Is it the power of the Roman Empire? Of your company? Social media? Friends? Print media? Cable news? Opinions around a Thanksgiving table or tonight at the Super Bowl party? What actually will last? What actually is the core foundation piece of the world? And what we come here to proclaim when we say the apostles and the Nicene Creed, when we sing the words of our faith, when we open the scripture, what we discover is that we are here to proclaim that there is a kingdom that is hard to see sometimes. A kingdom that is just beyond a thin veil between earth that, that separates earth and heaven. That there is a kingdom where everything is actually going to be flipped upside down. That what we as Christians get to do is to see glimpses of this kingdom where we have girls come in here for prom closet, young women who get told that no matter where you are from or what your resources are, you are a beautiful child of God. That it doesn't matter how much power you may seem to have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you may seem to have. None of that in the end matters because both Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to end up facing Jesus one day. Both Paul and Agrippa will stand face to the face to the Alpha and the Omega. And that when Jesus came to proclaim his kingdom, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's right among you. And I'm going to flip the world upside down. Proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, release to the captives, that he is going to come after our hearts and not just our outer selves. That Jesus is going to come to free us from slavery to sin and death and even the bondage of the opinions of other people. And that when we come face to face with our Lord God Almighty and we come to Revelation 5, when you realize that it is actually Christ on the throne, when you realize it actually is the one who made the world who died for us, that you have the lamb who was slain. When you have the lamb who was slain, you realize that in the end, nothing is certain except who reigns on the throne. That no power and principality, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things past, nor things to come. That nothing can separate us from the one who is king of kings and lord of lords and even king over death. Would you stand with me as we read this title of Jesus in Revelation 19? For I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.